This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us here on the program. It is always a pleasure to be with you. However you're watching, whether you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, whatever, we appreciate you being here, however you're paying attention to us. And uh, do have a couple of big announcements to make before we get into the meat and potatoes of our show. We actually have going on right now, uh, it's, it's in the works, we're working on it, but it should come through. The first presidential debates, we're organizing a live stream with lots of special guests. We're going to have Laura and Matt Clark here. Uh, looks like we're going to be able to have, you may remember from the school, or the, the school, the old show uh, that I did with Judge Montiel. Law School Mike's going to be coming there. John from Millbrook, a frequent caller, and my dad, he's going to be there as well. So we're, we're working on that. Behind the scenes, we'll have more news and more details on that as we get a little closer to the first presidential debates, which honestly seems kind of surreal at this point. It, it almost doesn't feel like we're in the middle of a presidential debate. I know that it, it's starting to feel that way more now that we've had the conventions, but really up until about three or four weeks ago, it didn't feel like there was a presidential election going on at all. And so now that the debates are coming, I know it's kind of sneaking up on us, but it is definitely there. Keep in mind, we're, we're less than 100 days away from voting. We're quickly closing in on Election Day. And speaking of Election Day, even though this is not a presidential election, Barry Moore will be running for election to represent Alabama for the 2nd District in the House of Representatives. Now, you know, not much of a contest. I'm not trying to, you know, bo bo bolster up Moore's ego or, you know, being overconfident, but District 2, electing a Democrat, that's just really unlikely to happen. It's never, uh, or it hasn't happened in a very, very long time. And so, Barry Moore, well, I say that. That's not actually true, because Bobby Bright was the representative before Martha Roby, so, uh, gotta, I mean, granted, Bobby Bright was a Democrat despite being more conservative than the Republican that replaced him, Martha Roby, and glad to see her go, but regardless, don't want to get off into the weeds there. Barry Moore is actually back in the news, and it's not for something good, and I think that he actually makes a bit of a misstep here, but it may not be the misstep that you think. So what it had to do with, it was a social media post, and it had to do with Kyle Rittenhouse, which you may recall, he's the guy that in Kenosha... Uh, there were people pursuing him. He happened to have a rifle on him, and he had he wound up shooting three people, shot two that died, and one he shot in the arm. And this was in self-defense. We could go by, but there's there's other people that have already done you know analysis of the video at this point. It's it's kind of old news, and so I'm not going to go through all of it. But suffice it to say that. All evidence right now points to it being self-defense. Now, there are five felony charges, if I'm not mistaken, against Rittenhouse right now. He's a 17-year-old, so he can be tried as an adult. And one of those charges, if I'm not mistaken, is crossing state lines because he's not from Wisconsin. He's actually, if I'm not mistaken, from Michigan. But he was going there. He was actually a offering medical aid and medical assistance to people whom he disagreed with, with rioters and looters and whatnot. If they got hurt, he would actually go and treat them. But he did have a firearm on him to protect himself. And he did go there, according to his own story. 
he went there to try to make sure that everything was protected and he was there to protect private property. So there's a lot of moving parts to this story and I've already gone over big chunks of it. There's other people that have already done their analysis. I mean, yes, two things can, can be true at once. You can say that A, a 17-year-old should not be taking a firearm, crossing state lines, and, and acting as a protector of the state. It's also true that from a legal perspective, because it was a, a somewhat organized event, that you could even refer to Rittenhouse as a member of the militia, which does give him certain legal protections uh, in the state of Wisconsin. I don't know if it works that way in other states. But you could actually kind of consider it that based on the, my understanding, of, you know, listening to lawyers from the state of Wisconsin. Uh, but anyway, so, so there's a lot of moving parts of this story, but suffice it to say that when he did act in self-defense and defended himself, that is a charge that I don't think is going to be able to go through based on all the evidence that we have. And Barry Moore was actually speaking about this on social media the other day, which resulted in him eventually apologizing. So let's go ahead and look at Barry Moore and what he posted. So he posted this meme that you can see coming up there. And uh, the first picture there is a guy that was hit, uh, hit in the head by protesters. This is actually the guy that was outside the bar in Texas. So as you can see there, not in, in good condition, and the caption next to it didn't fight back, and then there's another person that was hurt by rioters and protesters, didn't fight back. I'm not familiar with that one. I, I'm sure that if I got just a couple of details from the story, I would recognize it, but that, that's another one of the people that got uh, severely injured with the um, by the, the Black Lives Matter slash Antifa riots and protests, the 1619 riots, as, as, you know, is appropriate to call it based on the 1619 project. And then, of course, it has Kyle Rittenhouse standing there with his rifle saying, did fight back. So here's the thing. There's nothing inherently wrong with the spirit of this meme. Sort of the, the sentimentality that is behind it, that you have a right to defend yourself, that if you are armed, you have a much better chance at being able to defend yourself is accurate. However, the meme does have some inaccuracies in and of itself, even though it's not saying a whole lot. First of all, in the case of the guy that was hurt by the Antifa rioters and looters there in, in Dallas, the first picture that you saw there, I mean, don't get me wrong, what they did to him was horrible. They basically stoned the guy, and he wound up in critical condition. He's going to have some lasting health problems for a very, very long time. Uh, they they wound up hitting him with rocks within the within an inch of his life. I mean, this was something that you would expect to see happening in the Middle East somewhere. But he also did have a machete, and he did fight back, and he went to the bar to protect that bar because he liked the bar. It wasn't even his bar. And so I'm not trying to justify what they did to him, but I'm also bringing up the fact that it wasn't as though he didn't fight back. But the spirit underlying the meme itself is not one that is altogether bad. It's actually one that I and I think most reasonable Americans would agree with, which is if you are attacked, it's better to have a weapon of some kind on you and to fight back than to just let the mob have their way with you. I mean, that is correct. There's some issues with the accuracy and the way that it's portraying it, like I said, because... the. This is one of the problems that I have with memes in general. 
there's very little room for nuance when you're just doing the dueling memes thing where you're just throwing memes back and forth at one another. And this is something that Barry Moore, I think, kind of recognizes, and he pointed out that he didn't want to uh, seem as though he's callous or not, you know, sympathetic to the plight of the family members that lost their, 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 lost their relatives because they attacked Kyle Rittenhouse and Rittenhouse defended himself. Well, that's a tragic thing that that person died because they attacked somebody else and were shot in self-defense. It's the same thing, and I, I go back to a video, uh, I believe it was one of the elders there at the, uh, the church in Texas where there was a mass shooting type event that could have taken place. Luckily, only two people died, excluding the shooter. But you remember that that church in Texas, that a guy showed up with a, a firearm and just started shooting people, and immediately, because it's Texas, and I don't know why this person didn't think that this was going to happen, but because it's Texas, about six or seven people all of a sudden produced firearms and started shooting him. And so... You remember that the interview that happened afterward with one of the elders was, well, yes, it's a sad thing that this person died. It's sad that he came here wanting to hurt us. It's a sad thing that we had to hurt him in order to stop him from hurting other people. That's the same sentiment that I think you can display in the Rittenhouse story, but that doesn't mean that the self-defense was not justified, just like in that church shooting. Well, yes, it was sad that that person came there wanting to kill people, and it's also sad that the only way to prevent him from killing more people was to take his life. Those are both sad events, but it doesn't change the fact that the self-defense was justified. And so the underlying tone of what Barry Moore is trying to communicate is 100% accurate. Using a meme, and, and frankly a poorly crafted one at that, is not the best way to communicate that. And I think that that's a touch of what we're going to see in Barry Moore's apology afterward, he wound up taking it down and offering this apology. So we'll go ahead and read that. So this is Barry Moore reacting to it. He says, I apologize for the graphic nature of the post earlier, showing scenes from violent, uh, violence tearing through Kenosha, Moore said in the statement. I should have expressed my feelings about the situation in words, not just with the meme. All right, so... I think that this is correct, that what Barry Moore is saying here, what he is trying to communicate, is appropriate because he should have given something, a statement accompanying the meme or something like that that sort of fleshed out some of the stuff that I just communicated with you. And I think that it's appropriate that Barry Moore says, you know what, probably should have given a little more context, probably should have been a little bit more clear. And, and this is another problem that I have with sort of the meme culture. And I'm not anti-meme. I make memes. I, I put memes on the Tactics Facebook page. You'll see them from time to time. I, I try to make my messaging very tight and very concise. And I'm a little more cautious than probably the person that made this meme is. But nonetheless, I'm not saying that memes in and of themselves are bad. But what Barry Moore is communicating here and in, in, in his apology is trying to say is, yeah, the meme didn't really tell the whole, st whole story, and I get how people could perceive it as me being calloused or not caring about certain people or, or that kind of thing. And so uh, I probably should have added some content to that accompanying the picture or communicated that in, uh, without the meme itself. 
And that's part of the problem with memes, too, is that the, these people that make the memes, sometimes they make an excellent point, sometimes they're not real concise in their messaging, and it can say things that you don't necessarily mean to say. And because somebody else is making it, in other words, you're not the one putting the pictures together or thinking about the message. If you're just sharing the ideas of somebody else, it's very, very easy to share the idea of somebody else that did mean it a different way and did intend it a different way. And thus, you just saw it kind of on a surface level. was like, yeah, I pretty much agree with that. Share. Not, not a good plan. You really, really need to think about these things and sort of think them through. Now, let's get into another part of this apology because I, I think that there's some problems here, honestly, some things that I, I don't necessarily agree with. I'm troubled by, uh, not only by the shooting of Jacob Blake, but how peaceful protests turned into rioting, bur uh, burning, rampant destruction of a vibrant, growing town and acts of violence against police. All right, uh, Barry, and I say this affectionately because you know that I'm, I'm a fan of Barry Moore. He's one of the few people that, that I've actually you know, been, been very, very positive of, I don't know that I've ever criticized him on the show, at least not in an emphatic way. I, I don't necessarily think that that was a good way to message that. Now, maybe Barry has a different opinion on this than I do, and, and that's fine. And he's welcome to come onto the program anytime and discuss it. He's always been, you know, pretty eager to come on the program and he's welcome to do that now if, if he thinks that I'm wrong and that's okay. Why are you troubled by the shooting of Jacob Blake? Because remember, this whole thing, this protest where Rittenhouse wound up defending himself, it all started with the shooting of Jacob Blake, the, the guy who was shot in the back when he was reaching into a car, a car that had a knife in it, presumably to kill police officers, that he was reaching into his car, the police had already tased him. I, don't, I won't go over it again. We did a daily dose of stupid on it last week. But anyway, what about that case is troubling? How did the police officer act in any way other than the way that he should have? How should the police officer have acted if that was not the correct course of action? What about that troubles you? And I think that what he has done is he's done a little bit of an overzealous walk back, and in other words, an overcorrection. Like, you know how it is, you're driving down the interstate, and uh, all of a sudden you hear, your, you hear that sound that your tires make when they hit the side, those... Uh, I don't even know what you call it, those grooves in the pavement on the side, so you're, it warns you that you're veering a little too far off course, and all of a sudden you jerk the wheel back and you go too far, you go so far over that you're like over in the other lane. This is an overcorrection. Barry got some flack for giving a meme that was not real precise and not great on messaging, and I feel that it's 100% appropriate for him to say, you know what, I probably should have handled that better. That's fine. In fact, I think that shows some maturity and some humility. But going to this extent and saying, well, I'm really troubled by the Jacob Blake shooting. Why? I didn't see anything in that film whatsoever that seemed as though the police officer acted inappropriately or did something he shouldn't have done. That police officer presumably protected his own life, the life of his fellow officer, and the lives of the people around, which were many at this point, and the lives of the children in that car. The police officer did his job. And I, I don't see any way that that can be considered troubling just looking at it. I mean, maybe we'll find something else out that paints it in a different light. Maybe it'll add some kind of context that shows 
The police officer shouldn't have done that. I don't know. But as of now, with the available evidence, what we know about this case right now, I really genuinely do not see how Representative Barry Moore, former representative, hopefully future representative at the national level, I really don't understand what he sees as troubling, to use his words, about that whole thing. So let's look at the last little part of this. Uh, I'm especially troubled that a young man felt compelled to take up arms to protect lives and property in Kenosha against a violent mob that was actively threatening to burn it down. I have full confidence in the justice system to determine the rightness or wrongness of Kyle Rittenhouse's actions, as well as those officers in Jacob Blake's shooting. I, I also hope that those arrested in Kenosha for their part in the rioting receive the same level of justice from the courts for their actions. All right, there's a lot to unpack there, and frankly, I'm not going to go over all of it because it's outside the scope of what we're talking about. But that last part, that last segment that I just read, I got no problem with that. No problem whatsoever. The justice system will look at the case and, and the, they, they will look at the um, details of the case. Now, is justice going to come to the protesters? Honestly, that's hard to say. It certainly hasn't in other cities in the country. There have even been cities that, that straight up just allowed protesting to happen and didn't prosecute anybody, that kind of thing. We don't know if that's going to happen in Kenosha or not. That remains to be seen. But if you're looking at the cases of what happened with, with Rittenhouse and also what happened with Blake, it makes sense for Barry Moore to say, and I think that I was, it was actually a, a good little cherry to put on the top of that apology, that the justice system is going to take care of it, that, I, that I, he has faith in the justice system, that it's going to find the correct action to take, if any is, is needed, against the police officer in the Jacob Blake shooting and also against Kyle Rittenhouse. These are people that I believe, at least in these cases, based on the evidence that I've seen, to have been operating within the confines of the law and doing what they should have done, any reasonable person would have done, if put in the situations that they were in. And so I think that the law should not do anything to either of those individuals based on the evidence I have in front of me right now, but I also do have faith that the justice system is going to look at those things. But nonetheless, uh... This is a fair apology. I think that that's a, a fair way to criticize uh, to to assess it. But what you may be seeing are some growing pains here, because Representative Moore, he has been a local politician in a very specific region before, and he's not a lifelong politician. This is a man who served in the House of Representatives at the state level for eight years and then hung it up because he promised that that's what he was going to do. And by the way, I commend him for doing that, and I like the fact that Barrymore isn't somebody that has made his entire livelihood and, and has sort of crafted his lifestyle around the game of politics. It's something that he's involved in, it's something that he's passionate about, but ultimately, this is not something that is the driving force in his life, and I'm actually really grateful for that. That's something that makes him a good candidate. However, part of the side effect of that is that sometimes, because He's not as used to this side of the political realm as a lot of other people that might be in a similar position to him that would be running for a national office would be. His messaging might be a little bit sloppy. And I think that because of that, he, he, can't, he can't continue to act in a way that his messaging is going to be loose or give the wrong idea because he represents so many people now. And he represents them on a very, very big, very visual stage. Well, I say that as though it's a foregone conclusion. He's still a candidate. 
there, there is still an election coming up. It is very, very, very likely he will win. But frankly, making a mistake like this during the election, as opposed to after the election, if he's elected, is a good thing because he's not going to be on nearly as many people's radar right now. I think that this was an overcorrection. I think that his political, his, his campaign managers and his political advisors, they probably wanted him to come out on this and they advised him to go a little too strong, saying that he's troubled by the Jacob Blake shooting. That reeks of political correctness. Uh, it doesn't seem to be because, you know, it's, it's the in vogue thing to say, well, you know, the police could have acted better. Uh, not based on what I saw. Now, there are certainly cases where police officers acted in a way that was not befitting to them, and, and we actually will probably wind up talking about those a little bit later in the show because, you know, it, it pertains to another segment that we're going to do. But ultimately, uh, regardless of that, this does not seem to be a case where the police officer should have acted any differently than he did. Uh, now, the situation that Rittenhouse finds himself in, that is troubling. And that last part of the apology that you saw there, where he said, I am bothered by the fact that this young man felt compelled to take up arms. Uh, it's interesting because the situation is troubling, and that is correct, and that's a fair thing to say, and, and I think Barry Moore worded it vaguely enough to where you could say that all he was trying to convey was the sentiment that we're, we're in a bad situation, he wasn't condoning Rittenhouse's a decision to cross state lines and to act as essentially a security guard for a business that did not solicit his service as a security guard, that kind of thing. Because uh, that that's not good. I mean, 17-year-olds should not be taking up arms and driving across state lines or, or really driving anywhere to go protect other people's property. I, I, you know, I admire the courage, but at the same time, not the smartest thing to do. But nonetheless, regardless of, of how you feel about that, um, Regardless, when it comes to Barry Moore's response to this, the left will never accept that excuse. They will never accept the explanation that I just gave you. And the reason that that is funny is because it's exactly the same explanation that people on the left use all the time. Because basically what Barry Moore is saying is this was a rotten situation. It, it caused problems and it's bad that there is even a a possibility that this could take place because of where we are as a country. That is a correct sentiment. But Kyle Rittenhouse is still responsible for his own actions. And so were his parents slash legal guardians. Regardless of who it was at that point, there's somebody that should have been monitoring this kid and, and should have said, you know what, you're 17 years old. Even if you are just going to offer medical aid to people and you're just taking the rifle to defend yourself... I don't really want you going into that firestorm. Don't get me wrong. I admire that. But I'm also saying probably not the best idea. But the situation is specifically what Barry Moore is talking about. And he's almost making it sound like. That he's saying, well, the situation uh, would have necessitated him reacting this way. Not necessarily true. But it's hilarious because the left are always the ones that make the argument that these rioters and looters and protesters, uh, the protesters not so much, because usually when they say this, they're trying to defend the rioting and the looting and the destruction and you know burning down buildings and all that stuff. They'll say, no, 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 here's the thing. It's not this. 
It's not what you're seeing in front of you. They're not the ones that are actually causing these things to take place. They're not making a choice. It's justifiable anger. It's just like Chris Cuomo saying on CNN that the problem is not the burning and the rioting and the looting. The problem is the uh, systematic racism that caused these people to do this. Well, the systematic racism didn't cause the people to do this. Dr. Martin Luther King lived in the 60s when Jim Crow was still a thing, and he never burned down a building because he made a choice not to. People in these situations, first of all, it's mostly white people doing stuff like this. I mean, this is freaking Wisconsin. Not exactly an awful lot of genetic diversity there. I'm not making fun, it's just realistically, there's a little bit of it in Michigan, primarily because of the, uh, you know, uh, Dearborn has a, a large... Uh, Muslim population and Detroit has a large black population, but Wisconsin, Wisconsin's pretty darn lily white. There's some black people, obviously, but uh, not a lot of diversity there. And what's hilarious about this is it's mostly white people, and yet they're still trying to hang on to this narrative that, oh, see, they, they couldn't help it. It wasn't their fault. It's just the, the racial injustice is so bad that they had no choice but to burn down an auto zone. Uh, yeah, they did. That's still a choice that they made. That is still up to them. They continue to have agency. Black, white, whatever. People are people and people make decisions. Now, it is hilarious that they're saying that the white people are so angered <laughs> by the racial injustice that they, they had to burn down a Wendy's. No, no, that's not, not how that works. But see, Barry Moore, I don't think that this is the argument that Barry Moore was making, by the way. But the way that he was worded it, it could kind of be taken as though, well, Rittenhouse, he had no choice but to go and defend this because uh, this is what is going on. The left will never buy that argument, despite the fact that they make it all the time trying to defend the rioters and the looters. You see, you can't be a determinalist. In other words, somebody that believes that you have no free will, that you're just the, uh, the sum total of different reactions to stimuli. Uh, this is something that's very popular amongst certain branches of atheism, that kind of thing. You can't be a determinalist when it comes to everybody that you agree with and, and excuse them by saying, well, you know, they, they can't help it. They just are reacting to the bad situation and the situation caused the problem, not the person making bad decisions. And then all of a sudden, when it's somebody that you don't like or you don't politically agree with, like Kyle Rittenhouse doing something that you don't like, all of a sudden you believe in free will. That's not how this works. Pick a standard. You can either believe in free will and that people make their own decisions and ought to be held responsible for the consequences of their decisions, or you don't, but you can't shift that every time it's somebody that you don't like being involved in something like this. This is a situation that Kyle Rittenhouse, in my opinion, should not have been in. It's a, it's a position he should not have put himself in. However, once he is there, once he is in that position, once he's literally sitting on the ground and there is a person raising a gun to his head and he shoots them in the arm, which by the way is like some John Wayne level mess, how he wound up shooting a guy in the arm as the very arm that he was trying to raise to shoot him. I, I mean, that's something straight out of a Western movie. The only thing that would have been funnier is if he had shot the gun out of the guy's hand. But nonetheless... Once that situation arises, regardless of whether you think he should have been in that position or not, once that happens 
and he's defending his life from somebody that has a weapon that is trying to kill him, he's 100% justified. And frankly, I think the Lord was looking out for this guy based on the way that he wound up shooting and the way that he survived multiple attacks that night. So, uh, nonetheless, I mean, I, I think that this is just uh, a testament to, yes, he shouldn't have been in that situation, but once he's in that situation, he has every right to defend his life, just like anybody else would. That is an inborn God-given right. That's not even just a derivative right. That, that's one of the main ones. But ultimately, it does scare me just a little bit at how much of an overcorrection Moore's walkback was. That bothers me. And I really hope that Barry Moore does not find himself in a position to where he's doing the politically correct thing and just sort of sanitizing and whitewashing all of the, the beliefs that he has to, to protect his image. Because I think people really like the fact that Barry Moore is a straight shooter and somebody that tells it like it is and, and expresses his opinion, that's not a bad thing. And I think that the overcorrection here, it seems to me that he's, you know, following the the following the political wisdom of his advisors. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in all cases, but I think that they overcorrected in this one and, and that was a mistake. And especially in saying that they were troubled by the Jacob Blake shooting. Now, maybe he genuinely is and knows something that I don't, but it, it seems to me that the walk back was a bit much. But it does, I think, provide us a cautionary tale of how knee-jerk reactions and knee-jerk culture can get even the best of us. Even somebody that lives in the world of politics, at least for right now, that Barry Moore does, and, and he does. I mean, he's running for a office to, to represent this district in the House of Representatives for the entire United States. That's, that's a big deal. Even somebody like that that is as in tune to the news and the issues of the day as he is, knee-jerk reactions can get people like that too. Uh, just a quick example, Jim Gafkin just flew off the handle, completely broke the, the, the usual shtick that he does about not getting involved in politics and alienated a lot of his fans. And he did it, I mean, just, that was a knee-jerk reaction for him. Be very, very careful about knee-jerk reactions. And if you're ever posting something, make sure that you're posting it not because it feels good or because it's what you want to do in that one instance, because it's so easy to click share. It takes maybe a second, if that. Just think before you do it. That's all I'm asking. All right, so there is better news and it is local news, so this is something pretty good that happens right to our, our neighbors here in Montgomery in Lowndes County. So, the Lowndes County Courthouse has been renamed after Big John Williams. So, for those of you who may not remember Big John Williams, and we'll go ahead and show you this sign. This is pretty cool. This is the uh, sign that is now outside of the courthouse in Lowndes County. So, you can see the, the John Big John Williams Courthouse, and this is via Yellowhammer News. So this is just fantastic. You may remember this story from earlier this year. Big John was the sheriff that was killed in the line of duty. He was responding to a call, uh, going to a gas station, and then was shot and killed. And uh, it was just something that was, it was horrible, of course, that this is the reason that we, we came together. But people from all walks of life on both sides of the politi political aisle in Alabama 
sort of looked at this and, and held this guy up as a hero and should have. I mean, this is a police officer that by all accounts, by everything that we heard about him based on people from his his jurisdiction, I guess is the best way to say it there in Lowndes County is the sheriff talked about what a dedicated civil servant that he was, that he was the kind of guy that just went out of his way to help the citizens in Lowndes County. And he was sort of universally beloved. And the fact that somebody took his life and, and it happened in the role of him being the sheriff and doing his job, that's something that really united Alabamians. And, and I think, frankly, continues to unite Alabamians. In fact, they included this plaque that you can see here. This is the plaque that will now sit in front of the courthouse in Lowndes County, dedicated to the life and memory of one of the greatest men to ever live in Lowndes County. The Lowndes County Commission on December 9th, 2019, unanimous, uh, voted unanimously to rename the Lowndes County Courthouse the John Big John Williams Courthouse in memory of Sheriff John Arthur Williams Sr., who was killed in the line of duty on November 23rd, 2019. So, a fitting tribute to a very great man. And what it does show is that most Americans love our police officers. We do. This is something that is instinctive to us. We love our police officers. We love our law enforcement because the general public in America, whether you're somebody that tends to vote for Republicans or Democrats, that doesn't matter. We like the rule of law. We always have. Now, we've got a rebellious streak in us, too. I mean, we were founded out of the fires of a revolution, but a revolution that was still based in law and order. The reason that our revolution worked differently than the French Revolution and the Communist Revolution and the uprising of the Nazis and the Weimar Republic and all the other ones that went horribly awry is that we were rooted in a belief in laws for everyone. We had a system of laws in place already in our local sheriffs, our governors, our judges. We had all of that in place, whereas people in the French Revolution and the Communist Revolution and all the others didn't. They just burned down the whole system and tried to start over from scratch. We didn't. We broke off from England, but all of our legal institutions and our governance was already pretty much in place. We had governors here in the States. We had sheriffs here in the States. Our belief in law and law enforcement and people that are willing to do whatever it takes, including, in the case of Big John Williams, give their own life in service to that ideal, that is something that Americans hold near to our hearts. That's part of the reason that we do esteem military and police officers and first responders in such high regard. That's not something that's common to other countries, and I don't think that we realize that. In other countries, and, and this is before the revolution and since then, most other countries look at people like soldiers and police officers as instruments of their tyranny, as extensions of the government that are there to impose the government's will on the people. It's the opposite in America. We view our military as the guardians of our liberty, the people that swear an oath to uphold the Constitution, not the king, not the dictator, not the emperor, whatever else it may be. And that's one of the reasons that Alabamians look to this guy and see somebody that was willing to give his life in service of that idealistic goal and can see him as a hero as opposed to somebody that was in it for his own personal gain or to bolster his own career or to get more power and accumulate it under the king or the governor or whatever else it may be. 
That's the reason that we look at law enforcement differently in this country than other countries do. We still love our police officers and the vast majority of Americans still see them as a force for good. Doesn't mean we agree with them on everything. Doesn't mean we think police officers are always perfect or can't make mistakes. Doesn't mean we don't believe in police reform. Because as somebody that kind of leans pretty libertarian, I believe in police reform. I think that there are some things that need to change. But that's not indicative of the police officers doing something wrong. In fact, normally I blame the politicians for that kind of stuff, not the police officers. Ultimately, though, we do still see our police officers as a force for good, and that is something that Americans really ought to be proud of. All right, so we're going to go ahead and take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. So, uh, if you've been paying any attention to the political scene over the past several days, you know that the Democrats are trying a very bold strategy. It's, it's like that scene. It's a bold move, Cotton. We'll see if it works out for them. So the Democrats now, their, their latest big ploy is they are trying to flip the script on violence, and now they're trying to make it as though that it's, it's somewhat 1984-ish. They're pretending like they're against the violence, they're against the riots, and they were always against the violence and the riots, and anybody who says differently is lying to you and trying to trick you. So now here we are, you know, several months after the Democrats have, have been doing this game where they're playing footsie with the rioters and the looters and trying to make excuses for them, and now they're trying to say all of a sudden that they're against that, that they're going to come down hard on it, and they are going to fix the problem. One such piece of evidence of this that surfaced over this week was the Portland mayor, Ted Wheeler. Now remember, Portland has been engulfed in the flames of rioting for about 90-ish days now. And so the Portland mayor, Ted Wheeler, coming up to the podium and talking about this, and, and despite the fact that he has tried to get federal troops out of his city, that he requested that they leave, that whenever assistance has been offered to him from the National Guard or anywhere else, he turns it down, that he has had his own police force that basically ordering them to stand down. This is Ted Wheeler trying to blame, of all people, President Trump for the violence in his own city. Take a watch. For four years, we've had to live with you and your racist attacks on black people. We learned early where, about where your sexist that? attitudes towards women. Again, We've where? Had to endure clips of you mocking a disabled man. Completely untrue. We've had to listen to your anti-democratic attacks on journalists. We're not a democracy. We've read your tweets slamming private citizens to the point of receiving death threats. And now you're attacking democratic mayors and the very institutions of democracy that have served this nation well since its founding. Do you seriously wonder, Mr. President, why this is the first time in decades that America has seen this level of violence? It's you. Oh, it's Trump. created the hate and the division. The tweets that he has been putting out in the last 48 hours attacking Democratic mayors, attacking those who are trying to 
bring resolution to the violence in their local communities. He has an opportunity to uplift us and bring us together and help us move through this difficult situation in our nation's history, and instead, he chooses to play petty politics and divide us. That's my reaction. So that's the problem. That's where all the violence is coming from. Is it's, it's all Trump's fault because we haven't seen this level of violence in decades. Now, apparently, 2015 was not in this decade. Um, I, I guess because you know now we're in 2020 and that rolled over. We haven't seen this violence in decades, even though we've only been in this decade for a couple months. But you know, we haven't seen this violence in decades. Uh, 2015 was five years ago, dude. 2015, when we saw the race riots in reaction to Mike Brown and, and all the other things, when we first saw the rise of Black Lives Matter, when we saw uh, the looting, rioting, burning down of cities in Ferguson and Baltimore and St. Louis and uh, other cities too, uh, Atlanta had really bad ones, it happened all over the country, but apparently you're supposed to forget all that because it happened more than 15 seconds in the past. And so because of that, this level of violence that can only be attributable to the fact that Donald Trump is president. Now, here's the thing. Ultimately, and this is a feature of the federalist system that our founders put in place with our country, mayors are ultimately responsible for what happens in their city. To some degree, the governor as well, because the, the state is sovereign in our federalist system. So it is possible that the government shares some culpability depending on how the state set up its, its structure of government. But ultimately, if you're having violence in your city, you as the mayor are the one that is ultimately responsible for that. And I would say that whether the, the mayor were a Democrat or a Republican. But what's hilarious to me is that this whole thing that he does where he's saying that Trump has an opportunity to stop this crisis and he's not doing it. Why would Trump not want to help them stop the violence? Well, first of all, that kind of ignores the fact that Trump actually did send in federal troops not to stop the violence or to stop the rioting, but because they were defending a courthouse that was under attack, a federal courthouse, which is within his legal right to do as the commander-in-chief, as the person that is in charge of the executive branch of the federal government. That is something that is within the purview of the president's power to do. And keep in mind, I'm the guy that doesn't think the president should have any power other than the absolute bare minimum. Defending federal property, even if that property happens to be in a local city, that is something that the president does have the authority to do when it is under threat and under attack. But the mayor wanted those troops out of there. They wanted those people to not be allowed in there. So even with the thing that Trump was doing... He was against that. And let's also remember, this is the same mayor that, look at this letter here that he wrote to President Trump when he was offering aid through federal troops or the National Guard. This was Mayor Wheeler's response to this. Uh, On behalf of the city of Portland, no thanks. We don't need your politics of division and demagoguery. Portland, uh, Portlanders are on to you. We have already seen your reckless disregard for human life in the bumbling response to the COVID pandemic. And we know you've reached the conclusion that images of violence and vandalism are your only ticket to reelection. And look at the date, August 28th. The video that I just showed you is from two days after that. So here he is in this letter saying that, no, 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 we we don't need Trump's help. You stay away from us. When you offer us help, we're going to say, no, thanks. We'll do it on our own. And then two days later is coming out. Why isn't Trump helping us? 
Gee, I wonder why. <sighs> it amazes me that now the left is both simultaneously mad at Trump for not taking action against the violence and also mad that he did take action <laughs> against the violence. They're mad at him no matter what he does, and that should surprise nobody. But see, now all of a sudden the Democrats have tried to flip this script. That's how you get two days before this speech is made. The same Democrat mayor, wildly radical leftist, mayor of Portland, saying, no, we don't need your help, we'll be fine, we don't want your presence here, and then two days later complaining that President Trump hasn't done anything to stop the violence. That's how you get that, because now all of a sudden we flip the script yet again. The, the Democrats have tried it, and it, by the way, I just absolutely love this. The Babylon Bee addressed this as well. You know I've got to show this. So this is a, a headline from the Babylon Bee. Proud mayor lets his entire city burn to the ground just to make Trump look bad. <laughs> uh, this isn't even satire anymore. Babylon B, I don't know that I don't know if you've just forgotten this. You're a satire site. You're not supposed to report real news. <laughs> that I mean that's what's happening though, because he said in that letter that we just read that you see images of violence as your only ticket to the, the White House, and you want to be the person that comes in and on a white horse and, and you know puts a stop to all that. And so, no, I'm not going to accept your help. I'm just going to let the city burn to the ground because I wouldn't accept help from you. I, I want to make you look bad. <laughs> I mean, it's Babylon B is, of course, exaggerating, but in so many words, that's exactly what that letter says. And it is absolutely true. The links that they will go to, I mean, they will do anything to try to hurt Trump on this. And it's hilarious to watch it all unfold. Uh, absolutely astounding. And I, I do love, too, how they are blaming Trump for the violence in Portland. Now, I've never been to For Portland, but uh, Portland, not the reddest part of the country. There are like four Trump supporters in Portland. Uh, they, what, what was it? The Patriot Prayer Group that sometimes comes and does demonstrations in, in Portland. By the way, almost always just in response to demonstrations that have taken place in Portland from Antifa and from Black Lives Matter. There's like, what, 12 of them? I mean, there's the, the idea that Trump supporters are the ones bringing violence to the city. And, and let's also remember that a Trump supporter was straight up executed in the city of Portland the other day. You can see that video online too, where the guy was saying, Hey, we got a Trump supporter. And then they just shoot the guy in cold blood, murder him, execute, uh, shoot him execution style, just because the guy was a Trump supporter. But yeah, please continue with this narrative that Trump is the cause of the violence in your city. It is absolutely astounding that they're tr they're going for this play. I, I I guess I shouldn't be that surprised, but it's going up to the highest levels of the Democrat Party as well. Here is Joe Biden basically doing exactly the same thing. If I'm not mistaken, either on the same day or just a day later after this speech by Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, you can see Joe Biden doing essentially this exact same routine. Uh, a day after this takes place. The incumbent president is incapable of telling us the truth, incapable of facing the facts, and incapable of healing. He doesn't want to shed light. He wants to generate heat, and he's stroking violence in our cities. 
This president long ago forfeited any moral leadership in this country. He can't stop the violence because for years he's fomented it. You know, he may believe mouthing the words law and order makes him strong, but his failure to call on his own supporters to stop acting as an armed militia in this country shows how weak he is. Okay, so this is a complete 180, and you may be wondering why I'm not switching back to my camera. I want you to take a look at this before I switch back to me. Look at what's behind him. He's got three American flags in front of a screen displaying an American flag, and he has an American flag there on his lapel. You can see he's got a little American flag pin. Why is that happening? Because we just saw the DNC, the 2020 convention, there was barely any American stuff there. They had a fireworks display. They did have, uh, they, they had the Pledge of Allegiance, even though they literally left God out of it. They, they actually skipped over the part where it says one nation under God. They, they literally edited God out of the Pledge of Allegiance, but they did have a Pledge of Allegiance, even if it was, you know, not a correct one, it was a censored one. But you look th all through the DNC, they didn't even have American blue, they had off blue. They had moved so far away from the American, you know, this sort of patriotism. And this used to be very common amongst Democrats. Democrats may not necessarily agree with Republicans on certain things, but patriotism was not a partisan thing. Patriotism was not something that was lost on the Democrats. And so first of all, before you even get into the content of what Joe Biden said, I want you to look at that that now they have, because they have seen the dismal failure of their convention, the, I mean, just compared to the, the Republican convention, that it was a complete face plant. If I'm not mistaken, Joe Biden is the only candidate in history to get a dip after his party's campaign. This was before, before the Republican campaign even set in. Before the Republican campaign, uh, sorry, the, the Republican convention even started, he took a dip. Now, John Kerry and I believe Jimmy Carter didn't see a boost from their convention, but they didn't see a dip. This actually went down. A lot of these moderate voters that, you know, are sympathetic to the arguments that Trump is a very bad orange man and he's not, you know, the best candidate for president. They're looking at the production of the Democrat National Convention, seeing how it's blatantly anti-American. It cast America as this evil, terrible place and that nobody's even wearing American flag stuff that, that there's it seems as though this is a leftist think tank, not an actual political party in the United States of America. And that didn't play well. So not only are the Democrats trying to flip the script on the violence and trying to backpedal and actually blame Trump for the violence as opposed to just ignoring the violence, they're also trying to change their imaging because they see how poorly that plays with moderate voters. And so this is Joe Biden basically trying to relaunch and revamp his campaign because they thought that they were gonna get a boost from the convention and then they realized, oh crap, Trump is actually catching up and this thing might actually get competitive. We need to radically, radically change our approach. That is what just happened. You're seeing the effects of that. So they're not just changing the messaging itself and their stance on some things. They're also completely redoing the entirety of their campaign imaging. And as a media person, this is something that's easy to pick out. He's got 
he's he's wearing a flag. He's got flags behind him, and those flags are in front of a flag uh, a screen there, a flag waving on the screen. But it is absolutely astounding, getting into the content itself, that he is now blaming Trump for not reining in his supporters. Because you heard in that clip that, well, Trump is a coward, he's weak, and he can say law and order that he wants, but he's not reining in his supporters when it comes to the violence. Uh, first of all, like I said and, and mentioned in the previous clip, it ain't Trump supporters that are instigating this. Now, if there are Trump supporters engaging in violence, it is true that Trump has a history. This was true in, back in the 2016 campaign. This is something that I brought up, that he has a hesitancy to say anything poorly about people that support him, and that is not a good instinct by the president. But let's not pretend that this whole thing was started by a bunch of Trump supporters. Seriously, Joe Biden, that's the play you're going to make? And it's hilarious to me that he is doing this immediately after, immediately after an entire Democrat convention that lasted for four days where nary a word was said, not a single mention of the riots and the looting when it came to Black Lives Matter, when it came to Antifa. So Joe Biden getting up there and preaching about how Trump is a coward for not calling out people that support him that are engaging in violence. Really, Joe Biden? You're in the middle of a speech where you're talking about the violence, denouncing the violence, and you do not talk about where it's coming from. You don't talk about Antifa. You don't talk about Black Lives Matter. You just denounce it in a generic way. So if that is your standard, that President Trump is a moral coward for doing that, you are engaging in exactly that practice while you're decrying Trump for not calling out his supporters. If Joe Biden had got up on stage and denounced Black Lives Matter and denounced Antifa and talked about how harmful what they're doing is, you know, I would think that it was politically motivated and too little too late. But at the very least, I would have admired the fact that he was sticking to his convictions on, or, well, not really, that he was sticking to a consistent pattern there. He wouldn't really be sticking to his convictions because, like I said, it would probably be politically motivated. But at least then he would not be inconsistent. He's calling out Trump for doing the exact same, he, the exact same thing that he's in the process of doing while he's calling out Trump for doing it. It's absolutely astounding. And another thing, too. Does anybody remember Baltimore and Ferguson, which we've already talked about, that happened in 2015? Who was the vice president in 2015 again? Oh, right, it was Joe Biden. Didn't say anything about Black Lives Matter. Didn't say anything about Ferguson. So this isn't just something that recently cropped up. Joe Biden has had five years to call these people out and hasn't done it. Now, I don't view, for example, Kyle Rittenhouse going and defending himself against someone trying to take his life uh, at one point with a skateboard, at one point with a gun, whatever the weapon was, doesn't matter. He's acting in self-defense. I don't view that as violence from Trump supporters. But even if I did, it's a little different when that happened, what, 10 days ago, and Trump hasn't gotten around to calling it out yet, and Joe Biden has not said a word about it for five years. I'm not going to take that excuse from Joe Biden when that's 
the standard that he's setting up for himself. And this wasn't the only thing. Trump, uh, Trump is not the only person that Joe Biden blamed for this. Believe it or not, he actually blames police officers and Trump supporters in general for this. This may very well be his army of deplorables moment. Now, it's not as quotable and it doesn't have the, the catchphrase, like the catchiness of army of deplorables. But watch Joe Biden basically decrying Trump supporters as being the cause of the violence and police officers lumping them in there with him. Doesn't say a word about Black Lives Matter or Antifa. You know, I, I just watch it. Just watch it. And now we have to stand against violence in every form it takes. Violence we've seen again and again and again of unwarranted police shooting, excessive force, Seven bullets in the back of Jacob Blake, knee on the neck of George Floyd, killing of Breonna Taylor in her own apartment, violence of extremists and opportunists, right-wing militias, and to derail any hope and support for progress. The senseless violence of looting and burning and destruction of property. I want to make it absolutely clear, something very clear about all of this. Rioting is not protesting. Looting is not protesting. Setting fires is not protesting. None of this is protesting. It's lawlessness, plain and simple. And those who do it should be prosecuted. Violence will not bring change. It will only bring destruction. You know me. You know my heart. You know my story, my family's story. Ask yourself, do I look like a radical socialist with a soft spot for rioters? Really? You know that old saying that if you're playing defense and politics, then you're losing? That's a pretty good case study of it right there at the end where he's like, do I really look like a, a socialist with a soft spot for rioters and looters? Really? The fact that you have to ask that question, the fact that you have to pose that to the American people is an indication that you've lost, Joe. At least on that. I don't know that that necessarily means he's going to lose the election, but on that issue, yeah, that perception is set in. Because if it hadn't, there would be no reason for you to ask that question. Trump never has to go up in front of a podium and go, do I really look like somebody who is a radical socialist and uh, is soft on rioters and looters? Do you know why he doesn't do that? Because his actions depict that he is not. Now, frankly, I think he's actually been a little too soft on it. I mean, he actually does have the right, in some cases, to be able to use his force more than he has. I think he's showed an insane amount of restraint, but we're not here to really discuss that right now. That's a, a topic for a different time. Nonetheless, though, the fact that Joe Biden even has to ask this question is indicative of the fact that he and others around him pick up on the perception that he is indeed soft on looters and rioters. And that's the reason that he's, I mean, the whole reason that he's given the, giving this speech in the first place, the reason that he's trying to completely reboot and revamp his entire campaign is because of that perception and that being the reason that he is sinking in the polls. Remember that Joe Biden is the person who said that Trump's refusal to call out the people, the Nazis, the white supremacists, when it came to Charlottesville is the thing that launched his campaign. Now, this is a legitimate criticism, one that I criticized Trump for myself 
the day after it happened. So this is not an illegitimate criticism. And the fact that he kind of halfway called him out, but only called out the violence in the vaguest sort of terms. And then it took him like, what, three or four days later to talk about specifically name some of the groups and talk about how they were evil and denounce them. Okay, yeah, that, that happened, and that was bad. But Joe Biden claims that that is the thing that launched his campaign for the president to take four days to denounce these people. This is Joe Biden. This video was taken 98 days after the violence started. And even now, 98 days later, he refuses to call out Black Lives Matter and Antifa. So if that is the thing that Joe Biden felt so... Now, do I buy that? No. Joe Biden has run for president basically every four years since he's been, what? I don't know, 104? Because now he's like 170. Anyway, um, but when it comes down to it, I don't believe that that is the reason that he ran for president. I think that he was looking for an excuse and a strong talking point. But nonetheless, that's what Joe Biden said. Joe Biden told the world the reason that I felt like I had to throw my my name in the uh, my name into the pot, the reason that I had to enter into the fray and stop this man from getting reelected is because he refused to call out Nazis for four days after it happened. Here he is 98 days later, still sort of vaguely calling out the violence, but not calling out who was actually doing it. Joe Biden's just so full of crap. That this is the thing that he's coming out with. And the reason that he won't call them out by name is obvious. They're part of his base. They're part of the people that are likely to vote for Joe Biden. He doesn't want to alienate that part of his coalition, which, by the way, I still contend is the reason that President Trump did the same thing. Donald Trump kind of winked and nodded at the alt-right, and that was bad. And I called him out for it at the time. But now here is Joe Biden continuing a hundred days later, to not do that still hasn't done it. And so it, it, it absolutely is astounding that this whole thing started on May 25th. We saw the violent riots and uh, auto zones being burned and all of that. And Joe Biden is still just like, uh, what, huh, what? Now, to Joe Biden's credit, it may be that whenever he's on stage, he doesn't remember any of that stuff happening. That is a possibility that I do not want to discount. Sorry, I don't know what's going on here. Um, it is indeed a possibility that Joe Biden just forgot that all of this was going on, maybe. I don't know. But nonetheless, here we are, over 100 days later, he still hasn't called out Black Lives Matter, still hasn't called out Antifa. And that's where we are. But <laughs> the fact that this is going on, remember, part of the reason that people do have this perception that Joe Biden is soft on looting and rioting is because he has remained completely silent on it for over 98 days. When he finally does say something about it, he does it on the narrowest grounds possible. And if you were a space alien or somebody from, let's just say an American from 2010, you hopped in your DeLorean, you show up in 2020, and you don't watch any news, you have no context, the only thing that you watch is Joe Biden's speech. If you were watching that speech, the perception that you would get from that is there are roving bands of Trump supporters and right-wing militias and police officers just executing people in the streets, and that's the cause of the violence. 
you wouldn't know that it was a bunch of people on the left that are rioting and looting and tearing down cities because Joe Biden doesn't ever talk about them. At no point does Joe Biden say, look, if you're my supporter and you're out there or, or you're somebody that's on the left and you're burning down cities and rioting and looting, you need to stop that. He doesn't say that. The only people that he calls out are police officers who he blames for that, for police officers acting badly, that they're the cause of all this, and then blames right-wing militias. Those are the only groups that he calls out in this entire speech. It is absolutely infuriating. Then remember that Democrats other than Joe Biden, that haven't been silent on it, that have addressed it, whenever they do, they're either excusing it or they're either excusing it or they're basically ignoring the violence and have done so for the better part of three months now. You remember that the mayor of Seattle was referring to the, the Chaz and, and all of that as the summer of love and that it's nothing to worry about. We're used to this. It happens all the time. There's nothing to see here. Move your cameras somewhere else. When they took over the block of a, a six block area of a city, this has been the same thing in Portland and San Francisco. Uh, anywhere that the riots have been taking place, Democrats have been either completely ignoring them or giving excuses for them. You remember that Jerry Nadler, a representative, uh, a representative in the House, a Democrat, saying, no, no, it's a myth, it's not happening, this is a myth that's being perpetuated by Washington, it's not, Antifa's not real. This is the kind of insanity that they are asking you to believe. So, yeah. That's the reason that people are perceiving Joe Biden as being having a soft spot for rioters and looters. So now we get to the real question, which is why are Joe Biden and the Democrats doing all this? Why are they suddenly flipping the script and trying to make it out as though they're very much against violence, that this is not justified, and that something has to be done about this? Why is it that all the Democrats have switched their talking points basically overnight well, actually, there's a pretty solid and, and reasonable explanation, and it's provided of all people by Don Lemon. Here's Don Lemon on CNN talking to Chris Cuomo about why that is the case. Well, that's not it. I do think that uh, this, what you said was happening in Kenosha is a Rorschach test for the entire country. And I think this is a blind spot for Democrats. I think Democrats are ignoring this problem or hoping that it will go away. And it's not going to go away. And so, unless someone comes up with a solution over the next 73 days, or 70 so, however many days. 68 days. 68 days. So it's not gonna, the, the problem is not gonna be fixed by then. But what they can do, and I think maybe Joe Biden may be afraid to do it. I'm not sure, maybe he won't, maybe he is. He's gotta address it. He's got to come out and talk about it. Why, Chris? He's got to do a speech like Barack Obama did about race. He's got to come out and tell people that he is going to deal with the issue of police reform Why, in this Don? country. Why does he have to And do that? that what's happening now is happening under Donald Trump's watch, on Donald Trump's watch. And when he is the president, Kamala Harris is the vice president, then they will take care of this problem. But guess what? The rioting has to stop. Chris, as you know, and I know, it's showing up in the polling. Oh! It's showing up in focus groups. It is the only thing, it is the only thing right now that is sticking. And the Democrats tonight stuck with that, right? And they also stuck with the theme that you said. 
the coronavirus. You got coronavirus and you have Kenosha. Don Lemon. Don Lemon. Normally, I just bring Don Lemon to tell him how, bring him on the show to tell him how wrong he is. This one, he's 100% correct. And people are watching Don Lemon. The Democrats are, because, I mean, the like 10 people that watch CNN, those are the only ones that are, that are there, or people stuck in airports. I mean, that's also true. But Don Lemon giving you the answer in no uncertain terms. Well, look, it's showing up in polling, it's showing up in focus groups, it's becoming a problem. So, yeah, now we've got to address it. We've got to do something about it. We have got to address this because now it's starting to affect the polls. So if you want to know why Democrats all of a sudden are talking about how bad the violence is and how they're going to stop it and how as soon as Trump's out of office that this is all going to go away, that uh, they're going to be able to be the ones that fix it and why Joe Biden, after Don Lemon says this, comes out just a few days later with this exact, exact strategy, that's why right there. It started to show up in the polls. It started to affect polling data. And that's why all of a sudden they're like, okay, we got to do something here. They, they came out with the convention, didn't say a word about it, completely ignored it, never mentioned the violence coming from Antifa or Black Lives Matter, didn't address it, pretended it was not there. And then the Republican convention comes out, they're like, oh crap. This is not going well in the polls. And Don Lemon, seeing that, sort of acted as a voice, as a sounding block to that. And remember, and this is the thing that I find really funny about this. This is Don Lemon, who has been holding the water for the rioters, making excuses for them, ironically, even when they were attacking the CNN headquarters in Atlanta. And he's doing this, discussing this. This is the, um, I call this segment that Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo do uh, together every night. I call it the, the race to stupid because they're, they're trying to outdo each other. Well, I, my position is further left than yours is. No, mine is further left than yours. And they play off each other, and so they say the dumbest possible thing that they can say when they're interacting and, and doing these segments together because they're trying to out-liberal the other one. Uh, but anyway, so in this segment, remember that he is talking to Chris Cuomo while saying that the violence needs to stop, the Democrats need to address this. This is the same Chris Cuomo that you may recall that was making excuses for Antifa and saying, well, Antifa violence isn't really as bad as right-wing violence. That when Antifa gets violent, that, that's just not the moral equivalent of a right-wing person being violent for political ends. And it's the same guy that during the protest, when it was happening, Chris Cuomo looks in the camera and says with a straight face, where is it written? that protests have to be peaceful and polite. Uh, the freaking First Amendment? I know you've never read it, Chris Cuomo, but it is actually in there. The same amendment that gives, you know, freedom to the press, which is the one that you're always harping on, and, you know, sometimes rightfully so. But there's four other primary rights that are given in the First Amendment, and one of them is peaceable assembly. Not riots not burning down places, peaceable assembly. Same guy that said that, same guy that was running cover for Antifa and Black Lives Matter and the violence that they were promoting is the one that's, yep, we gotta, gotta call out the violence. Yep, gotta, Joe Biden needs to come out there and give that kind of speech. It's absolutely astounding. They don't, it's like they don't even perceive their own inconsistency. And that does beg the question though. 
are the Democrats controlling the media? Or are the media setting the table for the Democrats? Because it seems as though, at least based in this one particular situation, that Don Lemon comes out and says this and talks about it, and then the Democrats basically like, hey, Don Lemon's got a point. Uh, it's hurting us in the polling. We got to do exactly what Don Lemon just suggested, which is trot Joe Biden out there, have him make a very strong statement against the violence. Now, let's not mention who's actually causing the violence, but let's actually go out there and have him make a statement like Barack Obama did, just like Don Lemon prescribed. So... We always talk about the media as though they're at the beck and call of the Democrats, but is it the reverse? Are we committing a cause and effect fallacy? Is it actually the media that is setting the agenda and the Democrat Party is following it? The question actually kind of answers itself. When you're asking which one is running the other, they've just merged into the same thing. You know, at one point, the media, the media has always leaned left to a degree. I mean, ever since the early 1900s. And obviously it's been worse at some eras than it has been in others. But the media has always been left-leaning, but they were a separate organization. They were a different entity. Now they're pretty much just the same thing. There's a revolving door going on with people going into the media, back to the Democrat Party, back to the media, back to the Democrat Party, either as an elected official or somebody that works at a think tank. There's this revolving door going on there. And so because of that, and, and because of a lot of other factors too, what we've had now is it's not that one is controlling the other, it's that they've merged into the same hideous chimera. I know that this is an obscure reference for anybody that's in my audience, but if you are an anime fan and you like Full Metal Alchemist, they're like Shao Tucker. You know, Shao Tucker at one point is a human, but they wind up fusing him with some kind of like horrible beast thing, uh, which is really disgusting if you've ever seen the Full Metal Alchemist series. But basically, that's what happened with the media and the Democrat Party is that for a long time, they just kind of worked together. But slowly over the course of the past, I would say at least two or three decades, they began to merge to where they're just one evil, you know, entity at this point that are working. They're not even working together. They're just the same thing now. But here's the thing, it's always about politics. It's just that now they're finally admitting to it. And I think that Don Lemon may have accidentally spewed out some truth, saying the quiet part out loud, which he probably didn't intend to do, but definitely did. But personally, just speaking strictly from a political standpoint, regardless of whether or not I think that their agenda is good or bad or, or what their intentions are, I genuinely think it's probably too late to reverse course now. Maybe I'm wrong, I don't know. But it seems to me that they have reached the point, they have crossed the Rubicon to where the Democrats cannot salvage this. Doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to lose the election because they may not. But even if they wind up winning it, they're going to go into it with the albatross around their neck of the riots and looting and all of that stuff being on them. I don't think that this reversal is going to be enough to trick even the moderate voters that are just sort of haphazardly paying attention that aren't really dialed in I don't think that this is going to work even with them. They've gone too long now. They're too far invested in it. They've gone over a hundred days without calling out Antifa and Black Lives Matter for what they are. And it's just tied too much into them. They tried for too long to go the route of excusing it or saying that the, you know, the outrage or the riots are justified or that we, they tried that for so long. They're all so on record for this stuff that I don't think they're going to be able to reverse course on this. 
Maybe they still wind up winning the White House. Maybe they wind up flipping the Senate, although I see that one as unlikely. Yeah, maybe that happens. But even if they do it, it will be in spite of this. It's not going to be because they were able to actually change public perception on whether or not they were soft on this or not. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not. So let's go ahead and go to the Daily Dose of Stupid. Oh, you messed it up. <laughs> You're stupid. For today's Daily Dose of Stupid, the left pontificating on what police ought to do has gotten utterly insane. And so I want to make this very clear. It's not as though police are above reproach and can never do anything wrong and they're, they're magical unicorns that never make mistakes. They're human beings. Sometimes police do things that they shouldn't have. Sometimes they are acting in the way that is legally allowable, but they probably should have had better sense than to do this. I think, for example, with the Eric Garner thing, I understand why legally there were not repercussions for the way that they behaved. They couldn't have possibly known that the guy had a pre-existing condition. And I do think that the police should have let up once he stopped resisting. Absolutely. I think that Eric Garner's life could have been spared if that had taken place. But I'm just using that as an example of where police, I don't think, acted exactly the way they should have. I don't think that the cops involved should have been tried for murder or anything like that. But I do think that there is lessons to be learned there. With Rashard Brooks, frankly, the only thing police did wrong there is not being more aggressive. Is, is not putting him in a, into a chokehold immediately and being able to, to pin him down, which, you know, probably would have resulted in Brooks being taken in alive as opposed to trying to harm the police officers and, and wind up losing his own life in the process with Rihanna Taylor. I don't think the cops acted incorrectly there. I don't think that really either side, Brianna Taylor's boyfriend or the police officers, acted in a way that was irresponsible or unreasonable given the situation. But the police officer should have never been put in that position or put the other par party involved in that position. So even though I don't think the cops did anything wrong, that is indicative of something with the no-knock warrants, with the overzealous creating a conflict where none previously existed when it comes to serving warrants like this. That is something that I do think needs to be changed. But all of that being said, all of that being said, Ultimately, I don't approve of anything, any kind of police reform that is going to put police officers or people around them in danger. They have a right to defend their own life. There are things that we can talk about that probably do need changing. The no-knock warrant thing or the, the bill that Rand Paul put forward, that's something that I think that both parties should be able to at least talk about and have an adult conversation on whether or not that is a good idea or not. But ultimately... I want to show this clip that was put together by Key and Peel, which if you've never seen them, they're comedians, they're hysterical, some of their stuff is fantastic. The East versus West game with the goofy names, uh, the, the NFL infield celebration sketch that they do, absolutely hilarious. Uh, what's the other one? Racist country music, that one's really good. Uh, so these guys are absolutely hilarious. Keep in mind, I am not saying that the clip itself is stupid. I think the clip is actually really clever. I'm saying that this seems to be what a, a leftist believes that police officers are supposed to be like. It seems, based on their commentary of what the cops should have done in the case of people like Jacob Blake or the, the case with the gas station there in Mississippi, uh, 
his name escapes me right now. Pelinin, I think, was his last name. Uh, the, the way that they have reacted to those cases, or the way that they've reacted to several of the other cases when it comes to police officers giving a lawful order and people just straight up ignoring it and then being upset when that person winds up getting killed by the police officers just doing their job and trying to keep the public safe. It seems, based on their com commentary of what the cops should have done, that this is kind of the way that they view it. And so the stupidity in this clip is not the clip itself. It's the underlying uh, thing that the clip is making fun of. Let's go ahead and watch. Freeze! Police! Hands up! Do not get near that car. Wait, get away from it. No! Don't go near that car. Don't open <laughs> that door. Do not open that door. Don't open it. Do not open the car door. Don't you open that door. <laughs> Don't. Do not get in that car. Freeze! Your butt better not hit that seat. <laughs> get, get, get out of there. Get out of the car right now. No, you don't. Don't you dare reach for that glove compartment. Don't reach for that glove compartment. Get away from the glove compartment. Get right away from the glove compartment. Don't you open it. Do not grab that gun. <laughs> Whatever you do, do, you better not grab that gun. You better not grab that gun. Do not pull that gun on me. <laughs> put that down. Don't you pull that gun on me. No, hey, put that down. Don't do it. <laughs> Like I said, Key and Pill, those guys are hysterical. And what they are illustrating there is this idiotic idea that you just get to ignore a police officer even when he's giving you a warning, even when his firearm is trained on you, even when you're engaged in activity that could put the police officer himself or other people in danger. Do you get to just ignore that person and just drive off whenever you don't want to be arrested? That's not how any of this works. But based on what they're saying, for example, with the Jacob Blake thing, and by the way, keep in mind that this video was actually made before the Jacob Blake thing came out. Uh, but with the Jacob Blake thing, based on the commentary, well, they should have tased him. Okay, they did tase him. Well, they should have wrestled him to the ground. They did wrestle him to the ground. He got away from them. Well, what they should have done is, well, the only thing that was left at that point was either to shoot him or to allow him to just drive off with kids in the back, with the weapon potentially in his vehicle, just apparently any black person that doesn't want to be arrested can just ignore police officers and do whatever the heck they want, just like what happened in that clip. That seems to be the attitude of a lot of people on the left. Again, there are some cases where police officers acted in a way that is not befitting of a law enforcement officer, and we can talk about those. We can talk about police reform. I'm fine with having those conversations. But when you're telling me that what a police officer ought to do is to never in somebody's life, even when they are doing activities that would put that police officer and other people around him in danger, I'm sorry, that's a non-starter. I, I can't go there with you at that point. And the, I mean, that illustrated exactly what these people seem to think police officers are actually supposed to do. And this same stupidity was really put on display uh, with Rand Paul the other day, because 
these people are not willing to even meet you halfway and say, okay, let's talk about some police reform. Let's talk about some things that maybe we can do to make it a little bit better for police officers. Let's talk about things that we could do that make sense, that aren't going to endanger their life, that are going to continue to keep the public safe, but also make sure that we have less unnecessary deaths or preserve as much life as humanly possible. I'm fine with talking about those things, and so is Senator Rand Paul, who was accosted by violent rioters the other night who tried to attack him. You can see that playing out. This was actually right after the RNC when he was walking back to his, uh, his hotel room there. This is Rand Paul being attacked by a mob. All right, now right here, watch the police officer. The one right behind Rand. All right, see, they attack the, the officer. He almost falls down, Rand catches him. So that's Rand and his wife walking through there. And it is absolutely astounding that an American senator is being beset by a violent mob in the middle of Washington, D.C. That's absolutely astounding. And by the way, just quick side note before we get off into that. How hilarious is it that the D.C. laws require Rand Paul to wear the mask despite the fact that he's already had the coronavirus? I'm not going to get off on that tangent, but Rand Paul has already tested positive already recovered, and yet the law requires him to continue to wear a mask even though it is not possible for him to get it again or to give the virus to someone else. But I'm not going to get off onto into that tangent. That's beyond the scope of what we're talking about. Rand Paul is there. He literally has the police officers back. You hear politicians all the time talking about how they're going to have police officers back. Rand Paul actually does it. The guy literally gets pushed into him. He grabs his flak jacket and, and help stabilize him and pick him up. So Rand's got his back because the police officers are, of course, protecting him. They're doing the heavy lifting, but Rand Paul, it was good that he was able to help out that way. And, and like he said in his interview, that uh, he was scared for that. And, and if that police officer had been knocked down, then the mob would have been on him. And so it was as much for his own self-preservation as anything else. Uh, but you might be asking the question, Caleb, why is this so stupid? This is a Republican lawmaker. You could kind of see it coming, not saying you would justify it, obviously, but you could kind of see the mob attacking somebody like that. Well, there's several reasons why this is so stupid. First of all, attacking someone because you disagree with them, always stupid regardless. No, no matter whether you agree with them or not, whether they're from a different party or not, always dumb to see somebody that disagrees with you politically and want to do them harm and violence and, and lob threats at them like this crowd was doing, death threats, saying that they're going to F them up, all kinds of other things. Uh, always a bad move, never a good idea, always stupid regardless of what side of the aisle it's coming from. The second reason this is stupid is Rand Paul is a little L libertarian. I mean, obviously, obviously he's a Republican, but he holds a lot of libertarian principles. And because of that, he has done more for police reform than any Democrat in the Senate. This is one of his main issues. 
That, spending, and getting out of foreign entanglements, that's pretty much all Rand Paul does. He is the guy leading the charge in the Senate and worked with President Barack Obama for police reform, and he's the senator that they're attacking? Now, it wouldn't be justified regardless of what Republican senator they decided to go after. But at least if it were like a Mitch McConnell or an establishment type, you would at least understand, okay, well, they're doing that because they view him as an obstacle. Rand Paul is on their side when it comes to this issue. He's done more police reform bills than any Democrat in the Senate. And yet he's the one they want to attack. And if that wasn't enough for you, when they're yelling out there, say her name, say her name, they're talking about Breonna Taylor, who of course was in Kentucky, in Louisville, and was was killed in that. I'm, I'm not going to go through all the details. Yeah, Rand Paul literally wrote the, and, and I'll show you the graphic for this here, Rand Paul literally wrote the Justice for Breonna Taylor Act, which, by the way, would ban no-knock warrants and offers a few other police reforms. This is from his official website and came out on June 11th. Rand Paul has been doing this for a really long time. He, when they're saying say her name, he's the guy who put her name in the legislation. And these people are so stupid and so ignorant that they don't realize that. Which, sadly, let's be honest, kind of par for the course for them. These are tribalistic animals, not human beings. At least they're not behaving like them. And because of that, because they are operating as though they're some kind of tribalistic animal, like a pack of wolves, it's unrealistic to expect them to have any sort of even basic working knowledge of who the senators are or what kind of bills that they represent. These people are savages. They are not operating in the realm of discourse or anything that would be beneficial or helpful to their cause. And so... When they behave like animals, you shouldn't be surprised when they have the knowledge level of an animal as well. But furthermore, remember that Rand Paul is also the guy that has been seriously injured when he was just peacefully mowing his lawn at his own home and was tackled by a neighbor. And he's also been fired upon when a Bernie Sanders supporter went in and tried to murder Republican senators and representatives. This was the one where Steve Scalise was shot in when they were at the softball field. Rand Paul wasn't near there. He wasn't in that area, but he was in the ballpark and was fired upon when that took place. You got to hand it to Rand Paul. The guy has, you know, the stones to handle stuff like this. But man, the fact that he hasn't changed or altered his policies and that he continues to stand up for this, even when he and his wife are getting death threats hurled at them by an angry mob and their only defense are a handful of police officers, it's absolutely astounding that this is taking place in an American city. And this is really proof that the media's irresponsibility, their lack of any kind of journalistic integrity and trying to basically hold water for one political party, it has real-life consequences. Because the media whips these people up, convincing them that despite no data backing this up, that there is some kind of systematic racism, that police officers are going through American cities hunting down black people that they may murder with impunity. And they fill their heads with that, and then when they do start, which, I mean... 
Granted, it doesn't justify it, but if you thought that was real, you could at least understand why people might think that violently rioting would be a correct response to that. I, it obviously isn't, even if that were true, and it's not. So it's based on a lie, but even if it were true, it still wouldn't be a justification. But nonetheless, that happens, and then the media excuses them, says that it's okay, says that we need to give them room to destroy things, and then ignores any of the bad things that they do and tries to justify it, well, no wonder people thought they could get away with this. And so the media's irresponsibility, it definitely does have real-world consequences when you're looking at this. They fill their heads with misinformation to start with, and then when they do engage in bad behavior as a response to that bad information, they excuse it, they ignore it, they pretend it doesn't exist, or they actually do the worst thing, which is what you know people like Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo do, which is offer up excuses for why it's okay for them to engage in that behavior. But let's go ahead and look real quickly at Rand Paul's reaction to all this. He gave an interview on Fox and Friends, I believe, the next morning, if I'm not mistaken. This is him explaining what all happened there. They were shouting threats, you know, to us, to, to kill us, to hurt us. But they're also saying, shout, shouting, say her name, Breonna Taylor. And it's like, you couldn't reason with this mob, but I'm actually the author of the Breonna Taylor law to end no-knock raids. So the irony is lost on these idiots that they're trying to kill the person who's actually trying to get rid of no-knock raids. And they were shouting and screaming and just, it really, these people were unhinged. And you've seen the pictures of what they do to you. If the police are not there, if you defund the police, if we become Portland, if America becomes Portland, what's going to happen yeah. is people are going to be pummeled and kicked in the head and, and left senseless on the curb. That would have happened to us. I promise you, had we not had the D.C. police to support us, I mean, we are thankful that we have police right. and we've got to wake up. We can't have the whole country. We can't have Joe Biden rule the country and have no police. I mean... It, we can't yeah. walk down the street in D.C. safely now. And that's what my fear is, that the United States is going to be on fire if we have no police. And look, I've been for reform. I've authored 22 criminal justice reforms. They were yelling at me, you, we're not going to let you go alive unless you'll say out loud you're for criminal justice reform. And I'm like, you idiot. You are so dense that you have no idea that I've been a leading advocate for criminal justice right. reform for, with President Obama, with President Trump. And you're going to try to kill me? Now, a couple things that I want to draw from that. First of all, Rand Paul basically just echoing what I said. Uh, I mean, not that he was watching, just saying that it's the same point. That, yeah, if you were going to attack a senator because he's not for criminal justice reform, you would have to attack literally every Democrat in the Senate before you got to Rand Paul. But the second part of that, it also shows, because I get, I get flack for this all the time. First of all, it illustrates that you can both be pro-police and pro-police reform. I mean, Rand Paul, according to his own characterization, this is not me editorializing, this is what Rand Paul said, owes his life to the police officers that were there protecting him. He and his wife were in serious danger of being attacked by a mob, and we've seen people lose their life. We're in the double digits now of people that have been killed by these insane lunatics in Antifa and Black Lives Matter. We have seen that play out. And Rand Paul was in that situation with a mob of, he said, at least a hundred-ish people. And the police officers were the thin blue line standing between him and them. So he's not anti-police. 
he goes out of his way to give them the credit for saving his life that night. And this is not a new thing for Rand Paul. He has been consistent with that all along, but also has said, but there does need to be police reform. He's authored more police reform bills than anybody else in the Senate, according to him. Talking about the 22 different bills that he has put forward, and this is a serious issue to him. You can be in favor of police reform and also be in favor of police officers. Now, the Democrats tend to not be, but the point is it is doable. It is something that can be done. But you have to do it in a way that protects the cops, not the criminals. Now, people that are engaged in crimes or being suspected of crimes, those people have rights too. I understand that. I want to preserve that just as much as anybody else. However, those rights should be subservient to and subject to being overlooked, at least at the point, I'm not describing this well, uh, they are a secondary concern to the rights of everybody around them. So, for example, everybody has the right to life. This is something that is illustrated in the Declaration of Independence. But if you pull out a gun and start shooting other people, your right to life has just become less important than everybody else's right to life. They are trying to preserve everyone else's rights around you, and you're the one breaking the law and ignoring that right. Ergo, you were the person that has forfeited your own life. That's just one example. That's the best way to describe it. I know it was a little long, but I got to do that in order to really convey what I'm saying here. And so because of that, I am perfectly okay with bills that preserve the rights of criminals or suspected criminals that de-escalate situations. That's fine with me, and that's what Rand Paul tends to do. But if you're talking about police reform and doing something that endangers the public or endangers police officers, that's a bridge too far. I can't go any further with you down that road. You have to do it in a way that protects the police officers and the public, not the criminals. Not to say that the criminal safety is not important, but it is a secondary concern at that point, and that's the way that it should be. Also, it does illustrate, and this is somewhat of a side point, libertarians are not anarchists. Just because you hold a small government view, just because you think that the federal government should stay out of local affairs as much as possible, that does not mean you are an anarchist. Rand Paul has a lot of libertarian leanings. So do I still believe in the rule of law, still believe police officers are important. Now, granted, libertarianism is closer to anarchy than most people are comfortable with, but it's not anarchy. Think about it this way. Rand Paul is the libertarian whom people often accuse of being anarchist, and he's the one standing behind police officers, helping them get back up when they're pushed down, and to do their job and speaking out as for the, the great job that they're doing and the bravery that they displayed in protecting him and talking about how necessary they are while also talking about, okay, we need to get the government less involved in our personal lives. That is a consistent position. Just because you are a libertarian does not mean that you think that the government has no role, that there should be no police officers or nobody to defend our safety. Obviously, Rand Paul does not believe that based on the things that he said in that interview and based on the experiences that he had with those officers. But ultimately, it comes down to this. Do we want a nation? Do we really want to live in a nation where politicians can be beset upon by mobs of people that disagree with them and have violence done to them? I saw 
no shortage of blue check marks basically excusing this or making light of what happened to Rand Paul. Do, would we really want, again, flip the party and see if it still tracks? Would you really want a Bernie Sanders or a Kamala Harris or an Elizabeth Warren not able to safely walk back to a hotel room because there are mobs of people wearing MAGA hats going around and harassing them and shouting at them and trying to attack police officers to get to them. I don't want to live in that country. I don't care that it's Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris or Bernie Sanders, people who, with whom I vehemently disagree. That doesn't matter to me. I do not want to live in that country. And no sane American does either. We have to do better than this. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the chaplain's report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Our chaplain's report today is going to come from the book of 1 Samuel. We're continuing our series there. And this is a part of 1 Samuel because we, we've been dealing a lot with the more obscure part. Everybody kind of knows the story of David or is at least familiar with it if you've ever been in church or gone to church for any consistent amount of time. This is a Bible story that gets used a lot and, and for good reason. I mean, it's a fantastic story. One of my favorite ones in the whole scripture. One of the reasons that I decided to do this as a series that we've been mostly dealing with the part of 1 Samuel that is lesser known, the, the pre-David part of the book of Samuel, where it mostly focuses on Samuel and King Saul and their interaction. Now we're getting to a part of the story that everybody knows. Even people that don't really know anything about the Bible know about Goliath, the giant whom David, of course, slays. So let's take a look at this particular passage of Scripture that talks about Goliath's challenge that he issues to the, the nation of Israel. So we'll look in 1 Samuel 17, verses 8 through 11. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So this is really where it all starts. David has been introduced, but this is the challenge that he is about to face. And it's interesting because even before we get to the part about David, just looking at the, the raw story of Goliath and what he intends to do, normally, and this is something that we're accustomed to as Christians, modern-day Christians, normally evil conceals itself. Normally evil hides itself and sort of sneaks up on people. But there are occasions where evil just steps out into the light and says, here I am where it openly acts in rebellion and defiance to God and his will and doesn't even try to hide it. This is one such instance. Normally, it's harder to find the bad guys. It's harder to know 
the, when the demons are in the walls. And we actually see this even contained within the book of 1 Samuel. There are several villains that sort of bubble up in this narrative, including King Saul himself, that were at least at one time perceived as good people or appear to be good people at first glance and you have to learn that they're really bad people. Goliath, there's no mystery here. He just comes out and says openly, I defy Israel and I defy all of the people here. I am defying your God. This is essentially the challenge that Goliath was offering to everybody else. And we know from his physical description, he is a giant. He's a, he's a big, big dude. He's at least nine feet tall based on the measurements. You know, Bible measurements are a little off. It's, it's hard to tell, but we can tell relatively, virtually, uh, his, the area of height that he is. He's, he's roughly nine feet tall based on the way that the Bible describes him with the, the cubit system. But even though evil does usually conceal itself, this is one time where he just walks right out into the open and when it does conceal itself, usually, or when it, when it refuses to conceal itself, when it just comes out in the open and says, here I am, usually that's a fear play. What that evil is trying to do is to scare you into backing down. It wants to show itself to be so big and so powerful and so overwhelming and so insurmountable that everybody else just cowers in a corner and doesn't want to defy it. When you're facing that kind of evil... That's normally the plot. That, that's, that's the thing that it is trying to do is instill fear into everybody so that it doesn't fight back. You see, when it conceals itself, it doesn't really need to do that because it's concealing itself hoping that nobody will notice that it's evil and thus not attack it. In this instant, it's trying to say, I'm so big and so powerful and so scary that nobody can stand up against me and then scare you into not doing so. But here's the thing. The reason that works is because fear is contagious. Courage is contagious too, but so is fear. When you see somebody that is afraid of something, we instinctively as human beings think, ooh, maybe I need to be afraid of that too. When you see somebody holding back or terrified of something, if we can see that, we perceive that, especially if it's somebody that we trust and that we like, it automatically makes us take a second look and go, maybe I need to be afraid of that too. It's possible that there were men in Israel's army that despite Goliath being a very big, intimidating individual, they would have challenged him if they had met him in open confrontation on the battlefield. But because this challenge was issued this way, and everybody's looking around and going, ooh, everybody else is terrified of this guy, they don't think that they have a chance of beating him, maybe I should be afraid too, that nobody had the courage to step out and answer Goliath's challenge. And here's another thing that's important to note from this story as well. Most of the time, bullies are bluster and they're pushovers. They're not nearly as tough as they say they are. They're not nearly as tough as they talk like they are. In Goliath's case, it was real. Goliath is absolutely able of handling himself. Now, he winds up, of course, being easily defeated a few verses later by David because of God's help. But ultimately, this is not an indication that Goliath is not a big deal, that, he's not a, that he is some kind of pushover, that all they had to do was stand up to the bully, and then it was going to be an easy fight. Uh, no, that's not the story of Goliath at all. Now, compared to God, Goliath is nothing. But compared to the other people here, he probably would have beaten everybody in that army. Just because he's a bully does not mean that he's a pushover or that he's something that's easily surmountable. And when we're facing the giants in our life, just because an evil is there, just because it announces itself, 
just because it is something that is keeping us down or holding us back does not mean it's insignificant. Sometimes it is. Sometimes all we need to do is show a little bit of courage and we can overcome it. There are some cases where that's not true. There are some cases where we have to fight really hard to be able to overcome whatever it is in our life that is holding us back. But the fact that Goliath stands in open rebellion to Israel, which translates to open rebellion against God. He is standing against God, God's people. He actually taunts God in several ways. Uh, we'll see that later in the scripture. But he comes out against Israel, and he rebels against God. So the question is, why didn't God just strike him down there? Like, let's say Goliath is walking out, and he issues this, and he is in open defiance against God and talking smack about Israel and about God. Wouldn't it be, have been pretty convincing of God's power for a lightning bolt to just fall out of heaven and strike him dead right there? I mean, that would have been quite a spectacle to see. And the way that some people think about God, that would have made the most sense. Why doesn't God do that? There's a couple of different reasons. First, obviously, this was something that winds up setting David up for everybody in Israel knowing who he is and setting him up for his, you know, rise to power. That's probably part of it. I'm sure there's a number of other things, but I think the biggest issue, the biggest reason that God chose to dispatch Goliath in this way is because God does his best work when he's working through a human, which is a weird thing to say. But remember that he accomplished the greatest achievement in all of human history, the salvation from sin, while he was wrapped in flesh. God always does his best work when he's doing it through a human being. I don't know why that is. I don't know why he chooses to do it that way. I have some theories. But ultimately, what I do think it all comes to is that because human beings can see another human being step up, somebody as small and relatively insignificant as David, stand up to somebody like this, See, that inspires fear, or that inspires courage in them as well. And it also motivates you to act. Because it kind of reminds me of a scene in Andy Griffith where Opie, not unlike David and Goliath, has been having a problem with a bully that's taking his lunch money every day. And Barney, because remember, they are police officers, his, his dad's a sheriff. He says, why don't we just go and stop it? And Andy says, well, what happens when he's older? Do we just run in and solve every problem that he has? You see, Andy understood that Opie needed to face his giant. And I think God understood that Israel needed to face their giant too. I mean, yeah, ending Goliath's life, just striking him dead with a lightning bolt, that would have been quite a spectacle and, and probably would have inspired a good deal of fear in Israel, but God doesn't want to just rush in and solve every single problem that we have. He wants us to learn and to grow and to mature and to be able to face up to our own sin ourselves. Now, he's going to be there every step of the way. When David finally did step up to face down Goliath, God's providence was there with him. But he wanted David to have the courage of conviction, the courage of his faith, and also that courage to inspire others to stand up to Goliath on his own. And then God did the rest. All he had to do was stand up to the giants facing him. 
and God provided everything else that he needed. Why is it that no Israelite, except for David, looked at Goliath's challenge and saw it as a challenge to God? That thought about, well, if I challenge him because God's on the side of Israel, because we're the ones that are in the right, and because God has made this covenant with our nation, that he's going to protect me too. Why is David the first person that comes up with that thesis and acts on it? I think that's why he becomes king, isn't it? If there was ever a case study of the qualities that made David ready to be king or, or prepared to be the next king of Israel, I think that that's pretty much it. That David saw Israel as God's and his responsibility and that he had faith that he was going to watch over Israel, take care of Israel, all of that. And because of that, he has the courage to act and to do and to lead. And it's the same calling that we have as Christians to be leaders among other men, to inspire others to follow God's word. You see, everybody's got a Goliath. Everybody. I don't care who you are, how rich, how poor, what your background is, what your skin color is. Everybody has a Goliath in their life. But the difference is not everybody has a God to help them take down that Goliath. There's a lot of people that face their Goliaths without God in their corner. And that's sad because they're not going to beat that giant. They're not going to overcome that obstacle. As long as we have God, we can overcome it. But if you're facing down a Goliath and you don't have God in your corner, that's not a good position to be in. And that's the reason that God wants to be with us. He wants to help us. He wants to take down the giants for us. But he does expect us to step up and stand for him in order to do so, just like he did with David. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.